Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We are about to break the surly bonds of gravity and punch the face of God. I wish I was a little Left Jab Productions present Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide. And now your host, Dave Zarn. The Schmada Kid. Boom! Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide. I'm Dave Zarn. I'm playing with my voice. Because I think I have a future as the next Michael Winslow in the new reboot of the Police Academy movies. What do you think, Dan Baker? Am I good? Dan Dan Baker is single-handedly responsible for Maryland losing to West Virginia. And I hope anybody out there who is a Terp who's listening to this, call Dan Baker by what I call him now. Ex-Terp. Disowned. Ex-Terp. He didn't have the faith. They lost to West Virginia. Joined by the coach, Kevin McNutt. How you doing, coach? All right, uh, Dave. Uh, How's how- that bracket looking, dude? Hey, didn't I have Michigan State last week? Didn't I pick Michigan State last week? You did. Didn't I pick Iowa State? All right, yeah. moving on. No, and I didn't yep. pick Michigan State either. Didn't I pick Maryland? I'm so angry about this. All I wanted from this tournament was Maryland versus Kentucky. That's all I wanted was to see it. And for well, players you saw the Maryland coaching staff and the medical staff do the right thing, which I don't know if every school in the tournament would have done. They took Mel Triple out when he got a concussion, so props to them. Put him back in and then took him out again. They were down I mean, 10 with five. It, that, that was something. I don't know, Dan. I, 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 I couldn't even retweet your tweet uh, patting them on the back. And, you know, now I'm suspicious of you too, X-Terp. I really am. Like, you're praising them. It's, it, I, there's some Illuminati stuff going on right here. <laughs> He's sneaky. He's sneaky. Hey, Mark, we got a hell of a show this week. We're going to talk to Andy Schwartz, who is a, a brilliant economist, who all he does is, is he specializes in talking about the NCAA and how players are paid, aren't paid, will it affect Title IX? I mean, so I'm bringing in some expertise here to flush out that question. And also, we're going to talk to our old friend, Richard. You know our man, Richard. And we're going to talk to Richard about his brackets and how they're doing, particularly on the women's side, because I think he's really got something um, that he's working through, which I think we need to discuss. Namely, when Kentucky is going to get beat. And namely, if anyone can beat UConn on the women's side. But next segment, Mark, guess what? What? We're talking to you. Oh, yeah? Because you said you're no longer a Chicago Bears fan yep. after the signing of Ray McDonald. And I really want to explore that with you, discuss it with you. I'll be throwing at you some, even though I hate doing this, some devil's advocate questions. Me too, me too, me too. Okay. <laughs> We're like around the horn over here. Kind of. Um, hey, you just now you, now you owe Disney 50 bucks. Nice yeah, going, buddy. Fine. All right, to my we got to go to break. <laughs> Follow us at Edge of Sports. We'll be back after this. 
Edge of Sports Radio with Dave Zirin. We'll return after this. Dave Zirin returns on Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide. Boom, we're back here on Edge of Sports Radio, joined by the coach, Kevin Nutt. How you doing, coach? Mommy. And mean Mark Barry. How you doing, Mark? Doing okay. Doing, doing okay. Just I'm okay. I'm fine. Okay. I'm fine. Just okay. All right, Mark, as long as I've known you, mm-hmm. uh, you've been a diehard Chicago Bears fan. Your Twitter yeah. handle is Football Messiah. Yeah. Um, and it has all circulated around uh, your love for a very star-crossed team, the so Chicago Bears. Uh, you know, the, the, the kings of the hopeful 8-8 eight and eight season. So Maybe 9-7. and seven. Maybe 9-7. and seven. That, that doesn't make the playoffs. <laughs> yeah, of course not. But the signing of Ray McDonald. Mm-hmm. That to you was a bridge too far, and you're a sincere person, and you're not someone who says things just for effect. You said the signing of Ray McDonald, who uh, was arrested once, charges dropped on charges of uh, violence against women, partner abuse, intimate partner violence, and then at the end of the year was investigated for a sexual assault, uh, which was the real precipitation to uh, the 49ers cutting him two days later. Mm -hmm. That's too much for you. Yes. So speak about why. Well, I think I, I think last last year uh, for the NFL, it was it was the year of no more. Uh, so no more no more domestic violence. The NFL was in crisis mode after the complete bungling of the Ray Rice abuse scandal. Uh, player after player was accused for domestic violence. Goodell created this extrajudicial hole to throw players like Greg Hardy and Adrian Peterson, get him out of the public eye. And uh we see, we saw seemingly heartfelt public service announcements with current and former players tearfully proclaiming that there'd be no more tolerance for domestic violence within the sport. This is all logical more than anything because the NFL, in terms of growth, their fastest growing fan demographic is going to be is women. That that's mm-hmm. vitally important for the NFL. This year is already shockingly different than last year. Greg Hardy's been signed by the Cowboys. Ray McDonald's a bear, and the Vikings are groveling to win back Adrian Peterson's favor. Uh, the reason that they've been welcomed back to the league is none of them were convicted of a crime. Uh, this is not a victory for these individuals, but an indictment of the criminal justice system that failed the victims. Nationwide, only two out of every hundred accused rapists will ever see a day in jail, which is a big reason that 68% of all sexual assaults go unreported. Similar trends extended to domestic violence as well, where one in four women will experience intimate partner violence. Uh, and these crimes also largely go unreported. By bringing these offenders back into the fold, uh, the teams in the NFL... Uh, and the league as a whole are giving out a message to the millions of people in this country who've been affected by domestic or sexual violence. You are not welcome. Your concerns aren't valid, and any player who can help us win a football game is more important than you. Mm-hmm. McDonald and Hardy are back in the, the league. Ray Rice isn't, because we, we, we go back and we think about Ray Rice. That was the very much the linchpin of last year. I don't believe it's because Rice is uh, running back on the wrong side of 30, but there's a video showing all of us what Ray Rice did. Uh, no one can shake those images. I swear to you, uh, if this video didn't exist, Rice would still be a Baltimore Raven, and he'd be uh, on, tra- yeah, on track to be one of the most storied players in franchise history still. Uh, the truth is that society needs this sort of video as proof uh, because of the collective we, the, uh, the criminal justice system and the uh, court of public opinion, we don't believe women in mm-hmm. this situation. Uh, underlying uh, sexism is why rapists go free and victims are unwilling to come forward in the first place. So that so that's really interesting to me. Um, a lot of what you said is absolutely irrefutable on the face of it. But let me ask you here, mm-hmm. first and foremost, not a Chicago Bears fan anymore, but will still be an NFL fan, certainly. I, How do you make that distinction? 
I think it's tough. I think being a fan of football and, and caring about social issues uh, beyond sports is getting increasingly tough uh, these days. I, I try and hold both in my head, and it's getting harder and harder. I mean, if you look just in this uh, off season, if you're a Cowboys fan and Greg Hardy comes into the fold, or you bear and you see Ray McDonald, or if I'm a Tampa Bay Buccaneers fan and I see the prospect of them bringing in Jameis Winston, you have to question in terms of what am I a fan of at this point. Yeah, and the Jameis Winston thing, I'll tell you, the hardest thing for me about the Jameis Winston, um, everything surrounding him, is the way people talk elliptically around what he's accused of. Mm-hmm. I mean, today on Mike and Mike, uh, it was like, has he gotten over his maturity issues? And it's like mm. maturity issues. That There's a rape kit with his name on it. I mean, call it what it is right. if you're going to talk about it anything. Has he gotten over putting himself in situations where the question of violence against women is on the table? Mm. Let me ask you this. Yeah. Um, if Greg McDonald had been accused of something else, Ray McDonald, I'm sorry, if Ray right. McDonald had been accused of something else, um, is it is it this particular crime? Like, what if he'd been accused of hypothetically something that doesn't hit you as hard, but is say equally harmful? Like, say, setting a fire to a house or something. Mm-hmm. I think is that easier for you to push out of your head, or is it specifically this issue? It's hard to compartmentalize these things because each crime is necessarily different. Uh, I th- I just think that whether it's arson or it's another crime, you kind of take that on a case-by-case basis. But me taking violence against women and uh, women's rights, these sorts of things, very seriously, I see this signing as something that undercuts and just hits me deep to the core as a Bears fan. And if you if you, if you you look at the Virginia McCaskey, who's the owner of the team, mm-hmm. in, in name only, at least still, uh, 91 years old, the daughter of George Hallis, you look back to what they've done in the past. Uh, in 1985, she outlawed cheerleaders being uh, it's like being part of the team. She claimed that they were sexist, that they were seen as sex objects. I question whether she's fully in control of the team anymore. If they went to her and asked her if, if she's okay with bringing in a player who is has been accused of assaulting one woman and sexually assaulting another in the same calendar year. I don't know. And does it make a difference for you at all? I know one of your favorite players and one of my favorite players, too, mm-hmm. is someone who has a history of uh, violence against women, a former Chicago Bear, Brandon Marshall. Does it make a difference to you that someone like Brandon Marshall, um, as they say, owned his stuff, that, that someone like Brandon Marshall went through a process of introspection, that it didn't, it has not at all seemed scripted, that it's been very public? Um, and do you think if someone like a Ray McDonald or a Greg Hardy chose to publicly go through that kind of crucible, would that make a difference to you? And then how do we judge how much contrition is enough? And is it wrong to ask for contrition of someone who's never been convicted of anything? Uh, let me although, for, although for Greg Hardy, we do have to say he was convicted. At least once, yes. At least once. It, and then uh, on appeal, it was canceled because they paid off the, the victim. That's mm-hmm. what happened. And she, so she didn't show up. Right. That's not the same as being found innocent at all. Right. And, and why didn't you leave the Bears when Marshall came over? I think the, the contrition is, is a huge part of this. I think that not one crime is enough necessarily uh, to, to, to be plastered with complete refusal of being a supportive in the future. I think that Marshall came forward, especially with his mental health issues, and, and took culpability for this. If you look at what McDonald has done so far, there's been nothing of the sort. Uh, it's like he, is, he has proclaimed innocence the entire time, even to the point of 
bringing a lawsuit and suing the woman who had who accused him of sexual assault. And I was talking with as I was talking with you earlier, it's not necessarily because he feels so strongly that he's innocent of the of the crime, but he has the means to do so to bring this lawsuit to put it into the public eye to be like this is how strongly he feels he's going to bring a lawsuit that may or may not ever go to trial, but it's going to change the narrative. And can I tell you what's different about these cases than other cases? Mm-hmm. Like say he was accused of setting a fire and he says I'm on I was on the other side of town. You don't really know the answer to that question. But when you have a case like when the police came to Ray McDonald's house mm. and there are bruises on the neck of his partner, and no, that never went to trial. And you have to say, okay, was he guilty? Was he not guilty? Something happened that night. Something happened. Bruises on the neck. Oftentimes, there's no trial at the end of it because you know people don't want to come forward, particularly women don't want to come forward. Um, And so it just doesn't go anywhere. You've got overworked prosecutors. They're not trying to bring uh, indictments and charges without a a witness who's going to work with them on this for reasons that are understandable if you're churning through thousands of cases at a prosecutor's desk, especially if the person you're going against has certain resources to fight you. It's just not something – it's it's like you're going to say discretion is the better part of valor. I'm moving away from this. But so that's why I'm saying like if – you're not going to own the fact that something happened, then I think we have a problem. And I think the league should have a problem with players who aren't going to own the fact that something happened. And frankly, that's what makes Jameis Winston so disgusting to me. That's what makes Ben Roethlisberger so disgusting Absolutely. to me. Is that there's no... It's like maturity issues. And you know, when they say maturity, you know what the underlying is? Is, I shouldn't have trusted those loose B-words. Yes. Absolutely. That's what maturity really means. And so there's a misogyny when you call it maturity that rankles and that feels like acid in my bloodstream. Hey, this is Edge of Sports. Mark, thank you so much. Uh, We'll be back after this. Don't move. Dave Zirin will be right back with more Edge of Sports Radio. Dave Zirin returns on Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide. Boom, we're back here on Edge of Sports Radio, joined by the coach. Kevin Nutt, how you doing, coach? DZ, my man. And me, Mark, how you doing, me, Mark? I'm doing all right. Okay, excellent. Working through some issues, Getting but doing well. Doing well. Uh, yeah, our next guest is a lawyer slash basketball commentator and author. We're talking about the NCAAs because, I mean, the guy has shown that he has the Midas touch looking forward, and I want to talk to him about some things that are coming up and also looking back a little bit from what we've seen thus far. His name is Richard Kent. Richard, how you doing, sir? Good, Dave. How are you? Very well. First and foremost, based on what you've seen thus far in the men's bracket, who do you like at this point, Kentucky or the field? I still like the field, and I like the winner of the Wisconsin-Arizona game to beat Kentucky. And so that means Kentucky-West Virginia you don't think you you've probably seen the statistics about Bob Huggins versus John Calipari. I believe he's eight and two. You don't give too much credence to that. No, I think I think West Virginia has played some incredible games, and I uh, I really think that uh, they just don't have the manpower to beat Kentucky. I I don't know that their pressing style is going to be as effective with Kentucky as it was with their um, with their two wins. Next question. In the women's bracket, based on what you've seen, of course, it's all about UConn. 
who do you think is most likely to take him down based on what you've seen, and do you think it could happen? Uh, let me answer the second one first. I don't think it can happen, and I think Maryland is most likely to take them down. And that's my next question for you. Maryland's first game, definitely a little bit rough, looked a lot better against Princeton. How do you feel about how they're looking at this point in time, and do you agree with my assessment? Well, I agree with your assessment, but, I mean, I think we've got to do a segue and talk about the fact that that game even took place. Uh, I, I, I mean, I was, I was stupefied about three things that happened in the men's and women's tournament. Number one, and I guess it's been validated, UCLA getting in the men's tournament. Number two, Princeton women as an eight seed. And I told you in February about six weeks ago mm-hmm. that I thought that Princeton was going to get sent to Maryland so mm-hmm. the women's tournament would have a lot of cachet on the front page of newspapers with mm-hmm. President Obama and his wife there to see their niece. And that's exactly what happened. That was a great and, call. I, you, you sort of uh, usurped me. I was going to give you a separate mention for that amazing call. And three, and I know this isn't the NCAA, it's the NIT, Yale not getting in to the NIT is beyond my belief because Bizarre. I did the calculations a while ago. I believe their RPI was higher than uh, 17 of the 32 teams that got mm. in. And I was since told that the Power Five conferences controlled 60% of the vote with respect to the NIT field. And, you know, that's why Yale didn't get in over, let's say, Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt or thinking, yeah. Uh, Alabama. Yeah, Old hey, Dominion as well. Yeah, hey, wasn't Yale a co-champion with Princeton? Yale was a co-champion with Harvard. I'm uh, Harvard, I'm sorry, yeah. And that does not guarantee, given the fact that there's no playoff, that there's no uh, conference tournament and just a playoff, that does not guarantee them an automatic in to the NIT. And I, and, and, and I, I'm just, I, I mean, yeah, I saw Yale so many times this year, mm-hmm. and I really think that Yale would be heading to New York. Yeah. So, so Richard, yeah, no, I hear you about everything. Like Yale, uh, certainly about UCLA. Uh, very interesting where they are right now. UCLA Gonzaga is very interesting to me because I have I have looking at this Gonzaga team. I think this is their best shot to finally break through with Mark Few rhyming, uh, no extra charge. And but UCLA, I mean, is starting to look like one of those teams like Connecticut that gets hot at the very end. Connecticut men's. Where do you see that game going? Well, I, I certainly I could see UCLA winning that game, but the difference with Connecticut is that UCLA doesn't have one player like Shabazz Napier who could take over a game. And Napier was not going, just like Kemba Walker in 11, mm-hmm. was not going to be denied. I mean, I, I was at the Garden last year, and I didn't think there was a chance. I, I knew they were going to win the national championship against Kentucky, but I didn't think there was a chance that they were going to beat Michigan State, and they ended, I think they beat them 64-58. And, I mean, that just flabbergasted me because there is no better NCAA tournament coach than Tom Izzo. Mm -hmm. And that's actually goes to one of my next questions is coach right here liked Michigan State. And my team going into the tournament was Iowa State. How was I so spectacularly wrong? Mark Barry, too, about Iowa State. Well, let's put it this way. I'm in a player pool whereby – Everybody picks a team of players, and two of my five players are from Iowa State. Mm. They were P1 
peaking at the right time. They were playing in what we thought was the best conference, the Big 12. It turned out to not be the best conference. Uh, the Big 12 and the Big East were the big losers in the NCAA tournament. And, I, I, I mean, I can't tell you. I, yeah. I, I can. On paper, I thought that Baylor was going to win, but I'm not happy with the way they're coached. Uh, Iowa State has a great coach. Yeah. Uh, and I, yeah. I, I, was, I was in Puerto Rico. I was only able to watch, like, six minutes of that, three minutes of that game. And I can't tell you how they got to the point whereby, uh, you know, it was a one-point game with less than a minute to go. But obviously in any NCAA game, when it's a one-point game with a minute to go, uh, the favorite is in deep trouble. Mm-hmm. They tend to Richard, uh, I watched that whole game against UAB, and UAB pounded them on the glass. And that's Iowa State's uh, uh, shortcoming. They're small. They're a small team. Niang is a 6'7". undersized, not athletic forward. Um, I forgot the guy in the hole that just transferred in this year. He's slender, about 6'8". They're small, so they can be beaten. If you control glass on them, which UAB did, and the shots weren't falling, that's ripe for an upset. I also want to touch back on um, the UCLA scenario that you mentioned. UCLA got in because uh, of, of the power conferences vote in that committee room. That's why Temple didn't get in who should have been in. Um, I think they wanted to put another power team from another power conference and um, the, the, the Georgetown athlete, former athletic director. I'm, I'm drawing a blank on his name. Uh, Rienzo? No, no, no. Uh, he, he he replaced Rienzo, a black gentleman. Oh, man. I'm sorry. But anyway, he's he's now Stanford's AD. And he was on the committee. And I think they said, ho, 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 let's not, let, let's not get Temple in this thing. Let's go ahead and put another power team in. And, and they reached for, UC, for, uh, for UCLA, which is interesting. And I get out on this one is the committee said, hey, UCLA got in because they're playing well, some vague stuff about uh, the eye test. And yet they wanted to hold, Richard, one of your three things that you mentioned, you didn't mention this one, they wanted to hold to the criteria to justify why Dayton got a home game, which I never understood. Dayton was 16-0 and this year in a 22-game win streak, and they got a home game. And the committee says, oh, we got to hold to the stats. we got to hold to, to all, all the legislation that we have and all the paperwork we've done. But yet they say UCLA gets in on an eye test. No, I agree with you. I mean, it, 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 it's uh, – and I think the guy's name – is it Bernard? Yes, uh, Muir. Thank you. Right. Bernard Muir. Right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Richard. Right. But, yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, that, that, that doesn't make sense to me at all. But, I mean – Yes, Temple was certainly, you know, and they're they're on their way to Madison Square Garden, but they're, they were certainly the first team out, and Dunphy's a great coach, yes. and, and I think they're a very strong team. I, I also agree with your analysis, even though I didn't see the whole game of Iowa State. It's kind of analogous to Villanova. Yes, sir. Uh, really good shooters, not strong off the boards, but the difference with Villanova is I think Jay Wright is a lousy NCAA coach. Why is that? Can I ask you why, why that is? No, no I, I really want to hear Richard's thoughts on this. Yeah, that's a good question. Because Jay Wright has always been an impressive figure Classy on that guy. Villanova sideline. Yep. Why does it not translate to tournament time? Well, this year, the reason is that even though they thought they had scheduled a decent out-of-conference schedule, in other words, they played Syracuse, I know that, uh, but Syracuse was not Syracuse this year. I I just don't think that they played rugged, tough teams off the boards 
teams like they would face in the NCAA tournament. I mean, the the the, the, the Big East ended up being somewhat of a paper tiger. Uh, yeah. Obviously, Butler is good. Uh, Georgetown is decent, even though I thought that they were overseeded. Yes, sir. Uh, so I think Villanova's out-of-conference schedule certainly hurt them. And ever since uh, the game against Robert Morris, which was, I think, in 2010 or 2011, I think Jay Wright is kind of clutched in the NCAA tournament because he knows the criticism that's leveled against him. And I was reading the Villanova rivals' message boards after the game. I mean, there were people calling for his head after that game. Richard, wow. Richard, you would not believe this. Um, at halftime of that game against NC State, they, you know, the sideline reporter interviewed him, Richard, and this is what Jay said. And I like Jay. I know him personally because his kids play in the, in the summer league down here. He said, we do not want to go inside because it's too rough. We need to go out and, and hit some outside shots because they're easier. That's the first time I had heard a coach say, basically, we don't want to go into the paint. We want to shoot outside. He was admitting that we can't win in the paint. And I was just well, stunned. I mean, every, everybody knew that they were a perimeter team all year, and that's one of the reasons why they got demolished by UConn last year in the second round of the mm-hmm. tournament. Yep. I mean, you, yep. UConn pounded uh, <laughs> DeAndre Daniels, you know, just ate, ate him up inside. Mm-hmm. Wow. Hey, Richard, I mean, last last uh, chance for you here. What? Uh, give us one surprise you think we'll see this coming weekend as we head towards the Final Four. You're talking about in the men's tournament? Well, I'll, I always make it open, man. Gender equality, men's, women's. Yeah, I, I, I don't think we're going to see a surprise in the women's tournament other than the fact that I think Stanford is going to lose. Uh, I could certainly see Wichita State knocking off Notre Dame. Mm. Wichita State is a very good team. Uh, they're extremely well coached. And I just, I just think that, you know, Notre Dame, and, and I, I feel awful about Mike Bray obviously losing his mother a few hours before, mm-hmm. you know, the overtime win. But I I just, I'm not confident about how Notre Dame is playing right now. So I could I could see that as an upset. I can see um, equally uh, NC State beating Louisville. Louisville. All right, we got to go to break right now. We'll be back right after this. Edge of Sports Radio with Dave Zirin. We'll return after this. You're listening to Edge of Sports Radio with Dave Zirin. When we're back here on Edge of Sports Radio, our next guest is an antitrust economist with the consulting firm OSKR. He does a lot of research into the economics of college sports, and he's combined those two interests in preparing the economic testimony in the recent O'Bannon versus NCAA case. So happy to have him on the show. Joining us from... The Bay Area, Andy Schwartz. Andy, how you doing, sir? I'm good, thanks. Thank you very much for having me on. No, thrilled to have you on. Uh, first and foremost, just lay it out for our audience here, like the basic argument that you make, the elevator argument, if you will, for why NCAA athletes, you think, uh, should receive some sort of monetary compensation. Um, well, I always say that the, the question of should they get paid is the wrong one. I think the question, question is if the NCAA weren't colluding, would they get paid? And the answer is yes, they would. The, the, we, all, mm. we all should have a right to earn uh, what we're worth, to go in and ask for it, and if we're not worth much, we won't get much. The fact that the NCAA is so adamantly insisting on enforcing a rule to prevent anyone from getting paid, I think is a good sign that if the rule weren't there, they would. No, that, that's a great point, and that's one I look to as well. Now, 
when you're looking at the system as it currently exists, in your mind, is it like revenue-producing athletes who should be paid, or, or I mean, who would be paid and therefore should be, or the idea would be stipending all student athletes? What do you think is the system that would make the most sense, that would be the most feasible, and frankly, that would finally put an end to the NCAA as as currently constituted? Um, I, I think the, the best system is one where teams make their own decisions, or if not teams, then conferences. If you look over to Europe and European soccer, the unions over there don't work the same as unions in major U.S. sports, so they don't set salary caps. They don't do a lot of those sort of things. And they also have competition across countries. So you see the English Premier League competing with the Spanish League. Players earn something in the ballpark of 48 to 70% of team revenues there. So that the bottom end of that, that, which is Germany, is almost the same as the top end here in the U.S. in a collective bargaining agreement. In, in college, um, if you had each of the 10 football conferences or 32 basketball conferences competing, they could make their own rules. They could set a, a level of parity among the schools within the conference and then go off and compete for talent in such a way that if a school like up in Minnesota or in Maine or Massachusetts thinks hockey players are worth something, that then you know they would get paid in most places. Football and basketball players would get paid. I went to Stanford. Women's basketball players might be of demand there, um, probably in, in Connecticut as well. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think the simplest system really is almost no system at all, or if you, if you insist on having some, some rules, have them at the conference level. Mm. We were talking with Andy Schwartz, um, economist, uh, and this, this, is, this is really helpful. You know, the, one of the arguments that you hear against paying uh, college athletes, compensating college athletes, is that it would, um, A, either be in violation of Title IX legislation, which guarantees um, equal funding in public institutions uh, for men and women. It's, it's beyond sports, but that's how we most closely associate it. Um, it, or the other thing you hear is that it would actually be uh, not just a, a violation of Title IX, but it would wreck women's sports by their by just eliminating any money for women's sports. How do you respond to that? Yeah, so both of those things are, are like a, 180 degrees wrong. Um, the first thing is is that Title, Title IX is really specific at what it does and doesn't require, and so people probably think Title IX requires that men's sports and women's sports get equally funded, and it doesn't say that at all. Um, as a statistic, in 2009-10, I just looked this up, Alabama spent $43 million on men's sports and $13 million on women's sports, mm. and they weren't in, in violation of Title IX, because all Title IX specifically says with respect to money is that however many men you have playing sports, um, the money they get has to be proportional to their ratio. So if you've got... 60% male, 40% female athletes, and then the money that they specifically get in scholarships has to be 60-40, plus or minus a, a tiny you know, margin for error. And um, there was a case in ancient history at this point where the USC women's basketball coach, Marianne Stanley, sued the, men, sued, the US, sued the school over the fact that the men's coach, George Raveling, was making more money than her, and she pointed to Title IX saying that there has to be equity in coaching, and the court said, yeah, but men's coaching and women's coaching is sufficiently different that that well, when we say equity we mean you have to have a coach for each and the pay isn't set so as you have a system where the player pay 
is capped, and the way that schools compete for talent, among others, is to pay coaches more and more to get them to recruit. You shift money away from areas where Title IX does apply, the money that goes to players, to areas where it doesn't apply. So if we changed the system and if we allowed schools to compete for, for talent with pay, you'd see coaches' pay go down, You'd see mm-hmm. male athletes go up, but every time you increase the male athletes' pay by a, a dollar, it's not quite a dollar in matching, but there would need to be, under the law, a matching payment to women. So you'd see, basically, I, I think of it like a payroll tax. It's like, if you can imagine, well, you want this guy and you want to pay him $50,000 because that's what he's worth to you, that means you've got to put $50,000 in the kitty and, and the school might say, but I don't have $100,000. It's like, okay, then you'd give twenty five and twenty five. That's the way... Payroll taxes don't cause people not to get paid. They just they just alter the, the equilibrium payment. Mm. You see, w- yeah, one of the things that I think I find so obscene about the current NCAA actually is how much college coaches make now, particularly compared to 30 years ago, because it's obviously such a reflection of the billions of dollars in cable money that have flooded into the sport over the last generation, and yet the position of players is largely the same, except for the fact that they travel more, and there's more pressure on them than 30 years ago. But can you explain again, like, like if NCAA players actually were able to be paid for the incredible amount of revenue that they produce, how that would lower coaching salaries? Yeah, and I should be clear, it's not like tomorrow they'll rip up a contract that exists. People say, oh, well, you know, these contracts are in place. Yes. So this is a five- to ten-year transition, and if the NCAA were um, being proactive about this instead of scorched earth, they'd be planning for it. But, but in any case, yeah, the way it works is that effectively when firms and these schools, when they're out there hiring coaches and when they're out there hiring athletes, they're acting like a normal business, when they – figure out what they want to pay a person and the, the benefits that they get from increased quality. You know, that sort of sets a market rate. But if there's a cap on, on player pay so that you can't out-compete somebody that – I value this, this incoming freshman more than you do, but I can't pay him more. I need some way to lure him in because he's worth more to me. I will pay all of the secondary means of competition – that will help me get him. I'll make a nicer locker room. I'll put a waterfall in my hydrotherapy mm-hmm. room. And I will promise you all the things that I, that I can get you. I will get you winning because it turns out that winning is a great way to um, feel good. You know, it's, it's a consumption good for athletes, but it's also a great way to, do, to get drafted a little bit higher at the next level at, at, mm-hmm. at the NFL or the NBA. And so coaching, good coaching is, is a perk, so I'll, I'll get that. But coaching is a relatively scarce resource, and the best coaches – um, take advantage of that because they are in a, in a free labor market. There was an mm-hmm. attempt in the 90s by the NCAA to cap uh, coaches' pay, too. And the coaches took them to court, and the court slapped it down really, really fast, saying that's called price fixing. Mm-hmm. And um, as a result, um, when you want to spend $5 more on talent and you can't, you, you spend it on more facilities and you spend it on more coaches. So that's, that's some of the reason why you've seen growth in revenue, generates need for, for the things to get you more revenue. And normally in, in the NBA and the NFL, it would go mostly to the players. Coaches make about, uh, I would say, 5% of total payroll in, in those leagues. And coaches, in, even if you count the value of the scholarship at its list price, coaches can make twice as much in football and, and seven times as much in basketball as their team. Wow. I'm just curious to, like, agree or disagree on this. Like, one of the things that 
boggles my mind, and I know this isn't really an economics question, but I, I know you've thought about these issues, is when people say, well, we already have an entitlement issue with NCAA athletes in terms of how entitled they feel and little, how much little responsibility they have and all the rest of it. And if we paid them, it would only add to that culture of hero worship and entitlement. And my response to that is, note the reason why there's so much hero worship and entitlement is because that's all you can pay them in. And yeah, so I that becomes exactly the right. currency that's I used. I think the people who are most entitled are athletic directors who uh, were born on third base and, and think they hit a triple mm. um, in terms of how much they think that they deserve to get paid for effectively expropriating what the athletes would get in the market. Um, when I hear coaches talking about this, too, it's like, well, um, you know, the, the, the real market rate for all of your talents has been doubled, let's say, by the fact that you're sucking money away from people who, if they were allowed to earn based on their skill and their hard work and everything, they would, they would be making, like, the most money for almost everybody. This would be the most money they would make in their sports career lives ever. And instead, it's going so that either taxpayers don't have to finance field hockey scholarships or so that your salary can go up. Um, but, yes, also, when you can't – I think I read yesterday that, that's, that one school sent a – I think it's Michigan – sent a letter to the girlfriend of a player to try to convince her to try to convince him – to come to Michigan. Ugh. And, you know, those are the sort of like crazy indirect things you have to do when you can't say, we want you so much that we'll, we'll up our offer by $10,000. Yeah, or you get local police to cover up a rape case. Um, let, let me, last question for you. Um, and I'm, I'm sorry we're running out of time. I'd love to have you back. But uh, short answer to this, I find it really weird that I'm, I'm a lefty and I agree with right-wing economists at the University of Chicago that players should be paid. On the flip side, you see right-wing governors passing legislation to make sure that their athletes can't organize like they did at Northwestern. And then you also hear lefties, like my good friend Don McPherson, say that paying athletes would be a disaster. Why is there this weird political alignment on this issue, do you think? No, I'm with you, and we may, we may need another 14 minutes. It's hard for me to do this short, but the short version is is that um, I think that there is a strain of people, and, and I'm with you on the left, who, who see the whole process of rewarding people within a college structure for something that's not academic to just be fundamentally wrong. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that they have a market value in a system like that, it just, it, 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 I don't angry is the wrong one, but it just it strikes them as being wrong, and they might go to the point of even being saying immoral. And these people ought to be more interested in, in school. They should... It's, it's, a, it's a very proscriptive, your, your values should be the same as my values. And on the right wing, I, I feel like the combination, some of it is because unions have gotten involved and they're mm -hmm. just knee-jerk anti-union. Some of it is because it strikes that football is something that's very, uh, you know, it, it's right wing people sometimes actually are conservative and change is hard. And so the idea that this might change the nature of football, it might change the, the strict hierarchy between coach as mm -hmm. father and and players as as children to something where it's more like a partnership, I think that's also threatening. But I with you. I wish that we could see this as something along the lines of let these people be, you know, young men come from a lot of times come from backgrounds of poverty. Let's let them use their entrepreneurial spirit to earn their keep and get off of Pell Grants and get off of food stamps and lift themselves up by their own bootstraps. And to the left, I think we should say, isn't this a great way to end what's really 
a regressive tax where the earnings of young black men are basically taxed at 100% to pay for the salaries of middle-class white men. Yeah, and just uh, the basic issue of being against exploitation, which is obvious with this yeah, yeah, nakedly. Um, hey, Andy, thank you so much for coming on. If it's all right, I'd love to have you back on soon on the regular to talk about these issues. This was fantastic, if you're open to it. I, I totally am, so let me know. That's fantastic. Andy Schwartz, ladies and gents, uh, will be putting out some of his information over the Edge of Sports Twitter feed. And, uh, hey, we'll be back to wrap up the show after this. Dave Zirin will continue with Edge of Sports Radio after the break. Edge of Sports Radio returns. Here's Dave Zirin. We are wrapping up the show here on Edge of Sports Radio. I wanted to wrap it up on a bit of a lighter note. To me, this is like the most fun discussion to have at this time of year. Coach, I'm going to start with you. This won't be the last time we discuss it. I find the NBA most valuable player race fascinating. It's four people. Let's be honest. It's about... Russell Westbrook, mm-hmm. Steph Curry, no. James Harden, no. LeBron James. It's about two people. All right. First of all, who, who do you think it's about <laughs> and who do you think should win it? It's James versus Curry. You think it's James Harden versus Steph Curry? Right. No, no, no. I'm sorry. LeBron versus Curry. LeBron really? versus Curry. Yeah. I disagree with you. So wait, is this who you think should or who do you think will? Give me a should and give me a will. It, 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 uh, it probably should be Curry. It probably will be LeBron because he's got the cachet. Harden just throwing up big numbers. Uh, and he done a good job without um, – Without uh, Howard, yeah. Uh, yeah. Harden, without Howard, Howard in the lineup. Yeah. He's done well. Westbrook's on a losing team. The money you make the playoffs, you can't have him be as, as MVP. Well, I can't believe how much I disagree with everything you just said. Mark, do <laughs> you have any thoughts? For the I, record, by the way, Thunder are 41-31. and 31. That's 10 games over 500. Oh, is that right? So, well, I'm a so college guy. Can we give me a so break? So <laughs> I, I, I think it's I think it's down to Curry and Harden, and I think this is going to be the anointment of Steph Curry. He's going to win the whole thing. I think Harden's been great this year. I'd, I'd vote for Harden. You know what? Uh, how about you, Dan? Go for it, man. Who's your should and who's your will? I agree with, the Mar- with Mark in the sense that I think – Curry will win it. it again, anointing him. I think he is a face that that, uh, that the NBA wants. I think Harden should win it as well. He's done it for most of the season without Dwight Howard. You can make the same case for Russell Westbrook doing it for most of the season without uh, Kevin Durant by his side. And what 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 he's doing with the Rockets, putting up those numbers every game. I mean, and he plays defense. He, he plays as much defense as yeah, Curry does. They will never. Give it to LeBron in LeBron's worst statistical season <laughs> since his rookie year. It's not going to be LeBron. Right. Uh, it's going to be someone from the Western Conference. I'll tell you, it. I totally agree with you guys that it should be Harden. I think you guys are both undervaluing what a lot of people are seeing, which is that Curry, you know, to his credit, is kind of coasting towards the end of the year, mm-hmm. while Wes- Russell Westbrook is becoming almost like a cause celebre. So I think it's going to be should be Harden, will be Westbrook. Watch for that. We'll be Westbrook? Watch it, baby. We got to go. This is Edge of Sports. We are out of here. Peace. Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide. Tune in next week and go to edgeofsports.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. 
Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real Traveler Reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.